Hello there, it's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Quite the show we've got in store for you. Uh, actress Eleanor Tomlinson speaks to us about her role in Steve Merchant's new BBC drama, The Outlaws. Hillary Rodham Clinton, yes, you heard me, and Louise Penny join me live in the studio to fill us in on their brand new hardback, State of Terror. Stand-up comedian and author Phil Wang shares tales from his brand new book, Side Splitter, and Dame Joan Collins spills some of the fabulous stories from her book, My Unapologetic Diaries. But before all that, here's Maria and Graham's guide. I sit here in the Priory talking to you. <laughs> My addiction to chocolate, Graham. Oh, I know you, you. But you are, I mean, you do love chocolate. Oh, my goodness. You know what? Last night I just dreamt that I worked in a chocolate factory and I was making chocolate dancers. I mean, it's got legs, Graham. <laughs> See what I said? Yeah. Um, Delicious and, um, legs. <laughs> I think because I, before I went to sleep, I was thinking of Strictly tonight and I was thinking of chocolate. And so, obviously, there's a, a very good link there to my subconscious to give me chocolate dancers. Yes. But, I mean, you would you'd chew through a door if you knew there was chocolate on the other side. Oh, my goodness, yes. I would be like Jack Nicholson in The Shining to get to the chocolate, Graham. I am really a chocoholic. And I think the way to get off chocolate is just to not have it. And then for four days, you feel murderous, like giving up smoking, and you want to you know, have a headache. And then after that, you kind of, you know, you've broken the addiction. It's a pointless. It's like a sort of ge- general sort of suicide thing, taking sweets and sugar but all except, the time. Except, though, if you live in a, a built-up area, you, you know... Oh, there is a 24-hour garage, a walk away, and well, you will go. You know, in the yes. middle of the night, you will crack and go. I know. Last night I did that, and I actually, my gay friends, who I was their vulnerable person during lockdown, <laughs> that's what they called me. We look, we've got our own vulnerable person that we look after. Um, I said to them, I just had to go out to the um, journey out alone to the purple shop for chocolate. I look forward to lockdown 174, <laughs> where I can become your vulnerable person again. Uh, and they can get your chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> then they can get it. Talking of you've got a tv company graham yes talking of lovely ideas like chocolate dancers mad obviously um but listen just give me 20 seconds of your time and i'm going to pitch to you because i watched woodworking show the woodworking show hosted by your lovely tv wife yes i'm i'm promoting her i should be cross but i'm not it's called handmade and it's woodworking and it's lovely and it's very similar to all the other shows and i think here's a good idea so it's called hats off to the Great British Bandwagon, because that's what they're all called. And yes. it's called Who Wants to Be a Milliner? And people just design hats. And we have Boy George hosting it because he loves a hat. Yes. Philip Tracy. Of he's course. One of the hatters people. So, what do you think? Has it got legs, Graham? Uh, yes, it's. Uh, I've commissioned it already. Uh, it's, you, know I mean? you know what I mean? It. You might as well make that as something. I mean, you know what I mean? It's. It's no better, or no worse than all the other shows. So, <laughs> but why the woodworking not? show is good, and they've assembled a fabulous cast. Of kind assembled. Of... <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you see? I'm just. On it like if on its money, but no, I think that would be a good one, and um, I will obviously be an executive producer on that. Ofs, ofs, and yep. we'll sell it around the world. Oh, and you can and you can have you can have um, uh, guest judges like uh, Princess Beatrice and uh, Grace yeah. Jones and people. Yeah, you're running with this, and I think because life has been a bit dreary, hats are making a comeback. That's what they said when I tried to pitch this to a TV company. I said <laughs> hats are making a big comeback, you know, and they went. Really? And also, the great thing about a hat is 
any old loon thinks they can make a hat. You know, because yeah. really, and any old loon can a make a hat. If you're, feeling, if you're feeling unpleasant and fat or thin or whatever, you can put a hat on and you change your entire demeanour, Graham. Yes. I think this is in the bag. I, I mean, hopefully someone's listening to this and they're going, oh, they're onto something. Wouldn't it be funny if this did got made and people watched it? Well, it could get made. I'm not sure people will watch it, but uh, yeah, yeah. And people watch Pain Dry, literally. <laughs> Yes, that's on Sky. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Virgin Radio. I've got a problem for you. Would you like me to read it? I'd love nothing more. Dear Graham and Maria, my sister-in-law lives in Canada and for some reason has been talking about my 16-year-old being sent to her in order for him to attend university in Canada. She's only mentioned it to my husband, though. I'm quite upset as neither of them have thought to consult me. My husband speaks to his sister regularly and invites my son into the call, again, without inviting me. I have explained to him that I don't want my son so far away from home at such a young age, but it's been ignored and my sister-in-law has now sent him over a Canadian university listing. I've not mentioned my thoughts to my son, as I feel it's up to him to make up his own mind. But I do feel that his father and aunt are almost convincing him to go. Am I wrong to be worried about this? I just think that if he decides to go to university, he should attend one in the UK and then maybe go over to Canada when he was about 20-ish. He does have dual citizenship, as his father is Canadian. I'm just upset, as I feel that such a big decision should include primarily myself, my husband and my son. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. And that is from Kiara in Newcastle. Kiara, yes. Um, Kiara in Newcastle, uh, I don't know if you want us to be on your side, but I'm not really on your side. I just feel, look, does anybody, do you, is it a house of silence? Really, it sounds like these things are quite far along in as much as your uh, son is getting Canadian prospectus and so on. And... You know about this sort of in the background. It's almost like you're listening outside the door somehow. But, you know, you have to speak. First and foremost, it's up to your son in that order. Your son and you to guide him, perhaps. I mean, have you been offering him prospectus for universities in the UK, perhaps, that do the same courses? It seems like you're intent on being furious about this. I understand, Kiara, in Newcastle, it's very hard to let your children go and the empty nest syndrome and seeing them start their own lives is very real. It's hurtful and hard. But I think you're pinning too much on this. So I would just say, you need to just sit down with your son and your husband. Yes, the aunt is being helpful in Canada. Maybe that's where he wants to go. Clearly it is. But you just need to sit down and have a chat about it. Rather, even though it's lovely to hear from you, than write to us. Graham? Well, this is very odd, isn't it, that she's so isolated? It's almost like they're not together, her and the husband. But but presumably she'd have said, my ex-husband, if they were separated. So they must still be together. Um, Because, do they not have a meal together? Do they never sit down? Uh, I think it's become one of those things that she can't broach because it's become so big that she's frightened that she'll just verbal out a fury about the aunt and the husband. So I think Kiara knows that she's got it out of proportion. Yes, but also I feel if you're 16, 
you want out of this house. You don't want to be in this house because if that's already, you know, if you're walking on eggshells around, you know, mom and dad and, you know, nosy aunt sticking her beak in, it's just, yeah, I would want out and as far away as possible. So I think, uh, I, I'm saying Kira rather than Kiara. Oh, OK, yeah. Kira. But it's with a C, so that's why, it's, you know, Kira is K-E-I-R-A. This is C-I-A-R-A. Somebody will let us know. Maybe the ant in Canada. Good. <laughs> Good. Good ring in. Yes, I can't get through to Kiara. I wish I could just talk to her. <laughs> her sister-in-law in Canada. Uh, but anyway, I just feel, I just feel that it, it's... Yes, there just needs to be something. So, you know, you just need to talk about this because it is a big decision and I think it should be a family decision. Yes, the son ultimately will have the de- the deciding vote. Um, mind you, someone's got to pay for his flights and everything, but it sounds like old auntie's over there with a big bag of Canadian dollars. But, uh, but he I mean, will it's the- lovely that he's, he wants to go there and he's got somebody there. If he was going to Canada uh, just willy-nilly and there was no kind of connection, but if he's got an aunt there who's got his best interests at heart, that, that, should, um, that should give you some pause for thought, Kiara or Kira in Newcastle. You know, that he's not going to a country where there's nobody to help him. And he does have dual citizenship, so might as well take advantage of it and, yeah. and head over there. But I do, but it is crazy that the three of you aren't having a chat about best options. You know, well, yes, you can go to Canada, you can get a degree there, but it's not a great degree. Or actually, if that's what you're interested in, why don't you study here because they have a much better course? You know, there's a whole conversation to be had, not some sort of tug of love between you and your husband and some your weird woman sitting in Canada. She's not a weird woman. She's trying to help. I, I, I've gone off her. I really don't <laughs> like her. Yeah, just clearly, shut up. Clearly Nothing to the do with son you. does want to go as far away as possible. I mean, Kira, Kiara wants to <laughs> probably get him to a Newcastle, to a university in Newcastle, or you know, somewhere really close where she can constantly pop in. That's not how it works when you're young and you want to fly and be free. Yeah, the but, apron strings have to be untied. But also, I don't know what it's about her relationship with her husband because if it's so fraught and so tense that she's afraid to bring this up up that's wrong that's not a good way to be living it sounds like it's been going on for a long time doesn't it sounds like this has been rolling on and there has been resentment building up yes now sounds quite mad when she says it out loud yes i I, yes i think yes i agree with you that actually putting this down on paper you she must look at it and kind of think this is crazy that i can't have this conversation so if you can't, if you genuinely cannot have this conversation, there's a much bigger problem here, and it's to do with your marriage, uh, frankly. Um, but in the well, I'm in, glad that we've added another problem to her existing problem. And added to that, we don't know how to say her name. So, uh, <laughs> I'm, well I'm worth gonna, writing I'm, in. I'm going to take the, I'm going to take my advice from the two people who don't know how to pronounce my name. <laughs> they seem clever. And today was the day to send in a good bit of advice because best bit of advice gets a number one Castillo Perrara Cava Brut from Spain. I know, Cava. Delicious bottle of Cava. Uh, if you don't win it today, you can go buy it in Winters. It's 25% off till November the 2nd, I'm told. Cava was... I, how did Cava lose the race with Prosecco? How did... Because it used to be Cava was, you know, if you weren't having champagne, Cava was the one to go to because it was so delicious. And then Bully Boy Prosecco came in there and went, right, 
we're having that market. But anyway, kava's delicious. So uh, you could win or buy a bottle of kava today. What did you think? Uh, myself, Maria, couldn't make head or tail of this problem. Or indeed the other one either. Uh, maybe Kira's husband thinks he has made a sacrifice living in the UK so now he gets to dictate his son's life without asking Ian Preston I wondered that too I wondered if actually at some point the husband had wanted to move back to Canada and Kira had gone no here we stay and now to punish her He's sending her son away to Canada Emily in Limington I reckon the mother-in-law it's sister-in-law, by the way, is in on it too. Oh, mother... Oh, I see. You think the mother-in-law is in on it as well and they're scheming to get the kid back to Canada. Having said that, it's a great opportunity for him to connect with his Canadian family, so she's let him decide. Emily's sitting on the fence here, I feel. On one hand, evil, manipulative family. and But it would be a lovely opportunity to go to Canada. So maybe he should. OK. Thanks, Emily. Abby from Cambridgeshire. Uh, my advice would be to let your son choose where he wants to go to uni. What a great opportunity for your son to be educated abroad, which will widen his mind. I mean, that is true, but, you know, that thing of, oh, let him decide. It's a bit like, you know, when two people are calling a dog to see who the dog loves most. Yeah. Mm. I, I, it's kind of a... It's, it's such... I, th I feel like you've got to step back, though, because otherwise the poor boy will feel incredibly guilty and it will be terrible. Steve says, this is a golden opportunity to visit your dad's home in a safe situation. Uh, No-brainer. Okay. Oh, and Karen in Hampshire. OMG, Kieran needs to back off and let her son fly the nest. The greatest gift you can give your children is their freedom and independence. Why would you deny him such a fab opportunity? I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that it, she's not being involved in the conversation. In the thing. I, I, I think it's more to do with her relationship with her husband, frankly, than it is to do with her relationship with her son or what she wants her son to do. It's... Uh, because it's such a difficult problem, I am actually going to give the carver to uh, Emily, uh, who was nice on the fence there. She she had no idea what was... She thought it was an evil, manipulative plan, but a marvellous opportunity. And uh, well observed. Well observed, Emily, I would say. Graham's Guide. I'm going to read the problem before I get myself in trouble. OK. Here we are. <clears throat> Dear Graham and Maria... I'm going into my fourth year at university, yay! And it's the point of the year when people are starting to sort out their student houses for next year. I currently live with two friends, Sarah and Holly, who I also plan to live with next year, as well as four other people. You following this? So there's seven of them. <sighs> yeah. One of these people, let's call her Sophie used to be a fairly good friend and we agreed to live with her. But since we've come back to uni, she's been ignoring our messages, giving excuses for not meeting up and saying she's too tired, which we know is lies because we see her on social media and that she's out with other people instead. She also always seems to be in some sort of drama and falling out with her current and previous housemates. We've asked a few times if she still wants to live with us and she said yes. But we're now at the stage where we don't think we want to live with her. We don't enjoy the drama or the constant ignoring, quite. What do we do? If we say we don't want to live with her, there'll be a huge falling out. Do we just suck it up and risk it? And that is from Emily in Exeter. Well, Emily in Exeter, as Graham said, there's going to be seven of you living in this house. So, you know, it's always good to have one person that you don't like because then you know it's not you. 
Um, and also, you can get on with your lives. You'll be at lectures. You'll be out partying. You'll be, you know, getting drunk. All the usual university stuff. So I think she can fit in. <clears throat> but I think you've got two choices here with her. It's rude that she's ignoring your texts and, you know, trying to get in touch with her. And you're trying to find out and put this in place, whether or not you'll be sharing a place. So here are the two choices. You send her a text saying, we are... Um, talking to someone else who is interested in the room, but do you still want it? Please let us know soonest. Or if you really don't want to live with her and her dramas and there'll be a falling out, you have to decide whether you're prepared for that. You say, haven't heard from you, no reply to texts, so have offered the room to another person. There. Graham, what are your thoughts? Well, isn't it interesting that this person, Sophie, you can see she's sort of making this happen. You know, if, if she's constantly in dramas and falling out with people, this is how. It, she forces people into these situations so that they end up having rows with her or rejecting her in yeah. some way. It's almost like testing the friendship. Yeah. I think that's what psychologists would say, is that you put these things in place in order to see how far you can push people. Of course, it could be, Graham, that Sophie just feels, oh, I'll be living with them soon. I don't want to hang out with them now, um, you know, because we'll be hanging out together all the time. But I think you're right in your first assumption. Yeah, it's just it's a pattern of behaviour. And so it's, I mean, I... I mean, if I was Emily in Exeter, I mean, one, it's like, how big are these houses in Exeter? I mean, what what are they renting? Uh, are they all sharing rooms? Because it, these are big houses, if there's seven of them. I mean, surely it's not that hard to find a six-bedroomed house rather than a seven-bedroomed house. I would have thought it was easier to buy a, you know, a four-bedroomed house. It's, uh, I, I think, just... I love that you're getting into the just logistics of how many rooms. I think, you know, student houses often... What was the living room becomes another bedroom. Yeah. You know, they all kind of just have a bedroom somewhere. But I, I would, uh, I would let Sophie fly free. I just think tell her, oh look, we're we're bored of living with so many people. We're going to cut it down now. We're going to live in a smaller place. And and no, but it sounds Graham as if, as if they've got the place, and you need somebody. You need somebody to pay the rent. Obviously, they're cramming in as many people so that it's less rent. To well, pay. then make her have the room. Who cares? <laughs> Well, get somebody else. If you get somebody else, there's a lot of students at university. <laughs> I love that you're just going, oh, I don't know. I well, don't because care. they're only going to be together for a few months and then they're never going to see this woman again. So, you know, I think Emily's very invested in this right now. Cut to six months from now. She'll go, Sophie, remind me, what was, who was that? <laughs> you just won't know. So, uh, so either solve this problem now or it will solve itself in about seven or eight months. But there's months. a reason she's written to us. Maybe you having to put give deposits down at this stage to hold on to this house. Clearly it's a good house and they all want to live there and there's others that do it. But it won't be to too hard to get someone else by the sounds of it that you want to live with. Do you stay with the devil you know or do you get someone new? I would get someone new. But I think give her a chance. <laughs> Well, I know. I'm just I thinking, Maria, you're really it. earning your money today by, by caring about well, Sophie. Well, you're not earning your money, <laughs> sir. I could care less about Emily and Sophie in their house.
This isn't Go a problem. Have a word with yourself, Graham, while you play. No, but, no, but I'm just thinking this is the, because it's it's you know in student life these things do become enormous. And it doesn't mean that it's not important to Emily and Exeter. It won't be soon. Saying, it won't be soon. I don't but care. by the end of the next record, she'll have gone. Yeah. <laughs> I think you owe it to Sophie to let her know that because you haven't heard from her, you're thinking of giving it to someone else. And if she comes back to you with, well, I hate you then, so be it. You are very mature, Maria. <laughs> and I'm horrible. What should they do? Should they just suck it up or should they cut the cord and, and you know, all the drama that ensues from that? Uh, where's the, oh, here's the advice. <laughs> It's going to do you who the guests were on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. But no, no, there's some advice here. Uh, Lynn, Lynn from the Wirral. She will know. Oh, wise one of the Wirral. Emily, find a house or flat with your two good friends. Sophie doesn't want to live with you. Mm, that's what Lynn from the Wirral says. It doesn't sound like so. Well, it sounds like Sophie just wants some drama. That's what it wants. She wants attention and she wants drama. Leslie's in Epsom. Sophie is obviously trying to sort out another arrangement in the background and doesn't want to lose this house until she's found an alternative. Oh, isn't Leslie clever? She, she discovered all that from the letter. Uh, would it really be so dreadful to fall out with her anyway? She sounds a real pain. I'm with you, Leslie. She sounds awful. And you're not really friends with her anyway, because when you try to be friends with her, she ignores your texts, and then you see pictures of her out with other people when she says she's tired. No! Russell's in Portsmouth. If the rude lady still wants to move in, ask for a deposit. If she declines, find someone else. In that way, you'll have money. And that is, that, that's better than a friendship, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Steve says, calling Sophie behind her back, stalking her on social media, ganging up on Sophie, <laughs> even writing into the radio. If I were Sophie, I'd leave them behind. Uh, I like that, Steve. You can have a bottle of carver. That's what you can have. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, time for my first guest of the day. Uh, this Monday, uh, 9 o'clock on BBC One, sees the launch of a new comedy drama called The Outlaws. It's written and directed by Stephen Merchant and it stars my guest Eleanor Tomlinson. Hello. Hi, Graham. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. All the better for talking to you. So, listen, this is uh, sometimes, is you know, when you interview someone from a new comedy thing, you can't quite meet their eye because <laughs> it's not very funny. But this is, I laughed re out loud. Um, oh, fantastic. I'm uh, so pleased to hear you say that. What a relief. Uh, no, it's properly, properly funny. Well, you, I mean, you, I'm, well, you're all very good in it. Uh, if So what are you telling people? How you, It's a great premise for something. So tell us the setup and who you play in it. So I play Lady Gabriella Penrose Howe. And basically <laughs> the series is about a group of people doing community service. And so they all have a different backstory as to why they're there. And it's this, I guess, kind of everybody nowadays is so worried about being politically correct that it sort of makes fun of that in many ways. And it's it's just it's hilarious because it's outrageous. I think it's it's a kind of comedy that you don't you don't see an awful lot of anymore. But then there's also this really dark storyline that runs through it. So it's a really exciting piece. And each character is so well shaped by by Stephen Merchant, the writer and Elgin James. So it's just 
it's yeah, I'm incredibly excited about it. But it's also it's such a great way of getting disparate people to be together, you know, because that, that's that's what you want from a comedy drama. You want very, you know, you want, a, a, as you say, those kind of culture clashes and things. But often it seems really forced. Why are these people all together? But this is a perfect way to get them together. Yeah, it really is. It's it's fantastic. And I believe that Stephen's parents come from a background of, of community service. So I think it's actually very close to his heart as well. It's, I mean, they um, ran it. Like they didn't, yeah. they weren't on community service. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they were. They ran it very much so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And was this written for you? Uh, no, it wasn't. No, I um, I auditioned for it and uh, and got on. Yeah, just very well with Stephen. It was it was an amazing experience. I was I was really quite nervous when I first met him, but he's just charming. But is it one of those parts where you get it? And you kind of think, oh, really, you thought I was right for this? <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And I'm also the most untechnical person on the planet. I think so. For someone who's obsessed with Instagram and their phone, I I really was absolutely clueless. I mean, I was having to ask different members of the crew, you know, how to how to make it work how to make it seem natural so yes it was uh it was very interesting and you get some great costumes were you very involved in in the the clothes you wear oh my goodness charlotte the costume designer was just absolutely terrific she's very passionate about you know using some bristolian brands as well so that's that's really lovely um and yes i mean we did so many costume fittings and, and Gabby's costumes are quite honestly extraordinary, but that's what makes her fabulous. She sort of exists in a world of her own. She doesn't she doesn't have a clue about what real life is like. She's just led this kind of very privileged but actually quite sad life. So yeah, she's a, she's great fun. And it's a great cast, but uh, uh, the the name that everyone I mean everyone who talks to you about this show will be saying, Christopher Walken, because <laughs> Christopher yeah. Walken is in it. He's one of these seven people. So how intimidating was that? How odd is he on set? Uh, discuss. It, well, <laughs> it was just absolutely fascinating. I mean, I'm just the most enormous fan of his. I remember when I was at school, I painted a picture of him and I never showed him because he looks like an alien in my version. So, um, but he, yeah, he, he was just lovely and just so interesting to watch and observe. You know, he's done so many movies over his career and this is his first British TV show. So it was just a real honour to be in his presence. And like, would he hang out or would he just slink away and be very Christopher Walken-y in, in, a, in the distance? Occasionally he'd he'd hang out, yeah. But to be honest, I was my my jaw was just on the floor whenever I was in his presence. I was just kind of stare at him and completely lose the ability to speak. Um, I wasn't very cool, unfortunately. But yes, he's 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 brilliant. I remember we were filming in a in a nightclub at one point, and you know we film at the strangest times. You know, you, you say we're filming in a nightclub, you expect it to be as a nightclub, but when the house lights are up, let me tell you, it's a very different experience at eleven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And I found him just sitting in this sort of anteroom. And he was like, oh, come and sit next to me. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yes, of course. So, you know, it was it was just amazing. It was a really just the most incredible experience. But I bet he, he's one of those people you want him to tell stories, please. And you want him to poke him in kind of a what was it like? What was it like? And of course, you can't do that. Does he does he cough up a story unprovoked or does he just kind of is he just Christopher Walken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. I mean, at one point he did an impression of Marlon Brando and everyone was just, I mean, no one quite knows what to say. You're just sort of just astounded. Every time he opens his mouth, he's got this extraordinary story about these 
legendary stars of which he is one. So, yeah, it's amazing. Eleanor, how many episodes are there? There's six episodes, but we did two series back to back. So it was an incredibly long shoot. We've been working on it for over a year. Oh, my goodness. How I interviewed Stephen on Friday night. I didn't know that. Is that a secret? (laughs) No, it's not a secret. No, we're not sure when the second second will be released. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think, incredibly amazing. I think it's really a testament to his his writing that they would commission a, a series two off the back of I think they managed to shoot 10 days of series one before um, before we were shut down because of COVID. And so, yeah, it's it's really testament to, to his writing and, and, and how great the show is. So wait, wait, so tell me this. So there's so there's 12 episodes in the can. Yes. Yes, there are. So I mean, you were in Bristol for a year. Yes, yes, we were <laughs> I don't know why indeed. I sound incredulous. but So Christopher Walken was in Bristol for a year. Yes, yes, on and off. I know, quite extraordinary. <laughs> I thought he was just there for a few weeks sitting in a hotel. And that's why Stephen Merchant <laughs> took him to Stonehenge and things. But no, that, uh, that's a long, that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a lot of time. We've all become very, very close. But, and also, presumably, because you were doing some of this in lockdown. Yes, yeah, we did. We did, which was just a whole you know, other experience, you know, filming in amongst a pandemic was just insane, to be honest. I don't know. I don't quite know how they managed it. I'm I'm surprised Stephen didn't just pull his hair out, but they've done such a fantastic job and, and, you know, hopefully people will really enjoy the series and it'll be a bit of lighthearted comedy, but also this, this drama to see it through. So. And also it's that thing, isn't it, where, you know, on any set, I guess, you know, a cast will bond, but on this, you literally couldn't see anyone else so. oh yeah absolutely we've spent such a long time together all of us so yeah it's very strange I think that's actually one of the saddest bits about whenever a, a, a job ends you know it's actually saying goodbye to people but not only just the cast but the crew as well you know we've got a team of hundreds of people who have all created this show and and it wouldn't be what it is without them and, and their hard work as well so a really big shout out and thank you to, to everyone that stuck with us and you know, it's it's an incredible achievement, really. And now, obviously, we know that at the end of this series, there's obviously something unresolved because we already now know there's going to be another series. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it a closed thing? After 12 episodes, is it all resolved? Or is there a possibility the outlaws could return? I'm not telling you. You'll have to wait and see. Because you've already told a secret you shouldn't have told. There's, there's <laughs> I a, haven't. I there's promise. A publicist, it's not there's a, a publicist banging on your door now, going, "Shut yeah, up!" Someone's probably screaming at me. Yes. <laughs> um, and what working with Stephen? Because he seems like such a you know he's such a nice guy. Da, da, he's very funny. Da, da, da. How precious is he with his scripts and stuff? Does he let you have fun with things, or does he go? I believe the word is the. Oh no, no, absolutely. He he loves us to kind of add little bits and, you know, make suggestions, but he, you know, as the series went on and we got to know each other better, he'd come up to me, you know, we'd have a big scene the two of us because our our characters are sort of hand in hand. We sort of become unlikely best friends in in the series. So it's a, a lovely relationship that forms between the two of them. So we have a lot of scenes just the two of us and he would come up to me and he'd say, oh, I want to change all of these lines. And I'd be like, Stephen, I've spent a week learning them. You're doing this to me now? 
but it, it was lovely it was just really really great to to have the free reign to be able to really make the character my own and and, and to just have that that fun to be able to play with it with him well, it's, it's a great, great series. I, I, I say great, great. I've only seen one hour of it, but I really enjoyed the hour. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, I think I, I think I had another one, but it's, it's, you know, when you get, um, they send you previews and you think, I don't want to get too far ahead because, yeah, because that'll be annoying to have to wait. So, oh, uh, yeah. So I just watched one so that I can then join the rest of the world watching it on Mondays at nine o'clock on BBC One. It's called The Outlaws. Eleanor Tomlinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. Thank Aww. you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Welcome to the studio, Hilary Rodham Clinton. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I'm so well. Louise Penny is also here, but she's outside getting something. I don't know what she's getting. Oh, she's back. She's back. She has notes. She has bits of paper. Me, have you? Okay. <laughs> you said it's not right. Oh, don't fall. <laughs> All right. Uh, now we the, can begin now. <laughs> we can. So, State of Terror is the book, uh, and I sort of assumed this was like putting together a girl group. But you knew each other previously. Yes, yes, we did. We've, we've been friends for about five years, and we... but you obviously had heard about Hillary's singing skills, the oh, whole did, girl group. Yeah, oh, yes, girl of course. Group. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's next. That's for next time. Yeah, um, that's your next yeah. project. <laughs> and you know, when the idea came up, would we write a thriller together? Which seemed like a kind of preposterous idea at first, um, because she's a great uh, writer. She has this wonderful series set in Quebec that I have loved for years. And I've written nonfiction, but never fiction. Anyway, we began to talk about, okay, could we do this? And because we were friends before, you know, we didn't have to go through all the, you know, preliminary stuff. Just like, what do you think? Is this a good idea? Are we going to ruin our friendship? Um, and eventually we decided, okay, I would take the leap into, you know, trying to help write fiction. And she would take the leap into having a collaborator. Right, which which you know is not uh, it's not an obvious thing. I mean, you've you've have you ever written with a collaborator? You've no. written a number of novels. I mean, that now sounds and, annoying. Oh, you know, it was. <laughs> oh, it depends it upon the collaborator. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. No, it strikes me though because it, because the book is set in in the world of DC and mm-hmm. it's a, it, the main character is a Secretary of State. As a fiction writer, was it how? Was it ever kind of limiting that you have someone who goes, no, actually, uh, <laughs> that room, you couldn't yes. go from that room to that room? or well, that... No, that was actually really helpful. I mean, that that wasn't um, um, as annoying as one would have thought. <laughs> uh, and she did say that. She often, do you remember when you're describing your office yes, at, in right. the Secretary of State? Because mm-hmm. I had them side by side. And she said, no, you go through a conference room or whatever. And that's the kind of, I mean, the interesting thing for me in doing this um, is the telling detail, is knowing what detail to keep in, what detail to really was superfluous. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, thank you. So that's right. I pointed to Hillary when I said superfluous. <laughs> <laughs> but it does give the whole book an edge because, it, yeah, you know, it's yeah. a big thriller, it it's a big political thriller, but the, but the scenes when you're in the situation room, you kind of think, oh no, I am seeing this room through eyes yeah. that have seen and this room. And not just seeing, you're right, seeing, but also feeling. Yeah. Yeah. that sense of what it was like for you, Hillary. Yeah. yeah. No, but that's what made it so much fun, Graham. You know, when we really got into it and our publishers were still, you know, wondering whether this would work, they said, well, how about doing an outline? And I am an outline freak. I love outlines. <laughs> 
this woman hasn't done an outline, you know, I don't know, since she was in school. So it was a little bit of a challenge for her. But at the end of the day, I think that's what made it possible because we got the spine of the book. We finally got the plot uh, that we wanted to pursue. We figured out which characters uh, and, you know, we didn't actually start before to say, okay, we're going to have two women as the protagonists of this thriller about nuclear weapons getting in the hands of terrorists. But that's how it developed after we began to really dig into it with it's each other. It's quite organic yeah. in yeah. the process, as, as you yeah. know. And that that's what makes it the best. So it's trying to find that balance between having uh, the structure of an outline, mm-hmm. which really acted as the 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 um, backbone yeah. of this, and then but then that then allowed us to take risks, to take chances in filling in the the organs and the heart and the soul of it. And in terms of you know, because a lot of it is kind of ripped from the headlines. In terms yes. of the timeline, you know, like troops leaving Afghanistan mm-hmm. and stuff like that. W- were you? being very predictive or was it actually happening while you were writing? No, we wrote this before the election. We wrote it before our capital was, uh, you know, attacked. And we certainly wrote it before our troops left Afghanistan. But that's one of the, um, you know, one of the scenarios that I talked uh, to Louise about because I could tell once uh, Trump, the former president, um, decided to sign an agreement with the Taliban that said they were going to get out, we were going to get out uh, by May 1st of 2021. It was just a matter of time. And it was not only a matter of time before our troops got out, it was a matter of time before the Taliban took over again. And with the Taliban al-Qaeda, and that was mm-hmm. what, because I, I had asked Hillary, what is what was your nightmare when you were Secretary of State? And she came up, sadly, with a number of them, which then became my nightmares. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, knowledge is not a good thing no, sometimes. No, no. sometimes. Ignorance, Ignorance is bliss. bliss. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm normally quite blissful, but not anymore. And, and so I said, Hillary, just choose which one you want us to pursue and she chose the nuclear option and but, but that yeah, we went the nuclear option she went nuclear um, but then I said you know obviously that's not a plot that's a point so how does it happen and she said this is how it happens we're going to pull out of Afghanistan the, uh, the Taliban is going to come rushing back in and with them will come their military arm Al-Qaeda Al-Qaeda has connections with Pakistan which is a nuclear power and the Russian mob and they get the, uh, a, a dirty bomb. And I, I mean, that was terrifying to hear. But I think what is terrifying, whenever you read a book like this, you always think, oh, don't give people ideas. And, and, <laughs> and because because you have all this insider knowledge... No, you... but, I, but I have to tell you, I'm not giving them ideas. I would never do that. <sighs> this has been, and that's why it was a nightmare, this has... It, this is actually in the public domain. I mean, you can Google terrorists and nuclear weapons. <laughs> They've been after nuclear material and the know-how for years. And it was a nightmare because I remember when I was a senator uh, representing New York, um, I had a briefing. And again, this is now all in the public domain. And one of the briefers uh, from the intelligence community comes in with a suitcase. And he said, you know, it is possible to now miniaturize and put a nuclear weapon into something this size. Here's the suitcase. So this is something that everybody who is in, you know, the intelligence world or in the position I was in in diplomacy, we know. And we have to constantly be vigilant and prevent the bad guys from getting it. 
Um, so the public may not have been as aware, but it's uh, unfortunately a reality. You did a lovely thing. The, you had a mutual friend and you yes, paid tribute to her yes, in the book. we yes. did. Well, that's how we ended up uh, meeting. Um, this uh, friend was my best friend since literally we were 11, 12 years old, and her name was Betsy. And during um, the presidential campaign, she gave an interview. And in the interview, the reporter said, well, so what do you and Hillary like to do together? And she rattled off some things. But she did say, we like to read and we talk about the books we read. We recommend books. So the reporter followed up and said, so what are you reading now? And thankfully, we would not be sitting here, Graham. She said, we're reading the latest Louise Penny. So when that article got published, Louise's um, publisher, Send it to Louise, and you can take it from there. Well, and when I regained consciousness, <laughs> I said, yeah, I'd like to meet Hillary's best friend. But, it's, you know, it's so strange. Don't you find in life it's often like that, that things are just so... Um, appear to be such coincidences. I mean, I, you, because you read Hillary's small C Catholic, you read everything and all the time. So if the question had been asked an hour later or an hour earlier, <laughs> you know, James Patterson could be sitting here. <laughs> Thank God. It was me. And, and so I got a chance to meet Betsy. We immediately clicked. As, as Hillary has described her, she had a gift for friendship, as you can tell, I hope, from the book. Yeah. Um, and then through, then, then Hillary actually, my husband died two weeks after I came back from tour. And Hillary wrote the most beautiful letter of condolence. It was just, I mean, you know, the experience was shattering. And it was very healing to read letters of condolence, never mind from someone who should have been the president of the United States. And she wrote to a Canadian who can't vote, a woman she'd never met, about a man she'd never met. It was an act of such pure altruism that um, I'd always respected Hillary as a professionally, but I certainly fell in love with her then personally and then got a chance to meet Hillary, um, in February, right, with Betsy. Mm -hmm. We came to Chappaqua. Mm -hmm. And they said, do you want to come to Chappaqua for a night? And I'm thinking, yeah, that would be nice. I mean, I can sort of hold it together and not say anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like, a night. And then Hillary ex expanded it to two nights. I thought, now, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> but we just, and because we were two women of a certain age who understood loss and grief, yeah. and we connected at that level. And also, isn't there something about, like, having old, when, as you get older, I think, having old friends is lovely, mm -hmm. but also you don't expect to meet new friends. Yes. And it's a lovely thing. I think it is absolutely um, one of the best parts of my uh, life over the last, you know, 25, 30 years is I've met so many interesting people. And you're, you're right. I actually have friends, and I know people who say, I, I don't make any more friends. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not doing, I'm not taking the risk of getting to know somebody that may not turn out to be what I think. Card is full. Dance card is full. And and I, I think, wow, what are you missing? And so for me, yeah, I keep my my longtime friends and I'm grateful beyond words for them, but I love meeting new people. Yeah. And now in the, the plotting of this book, so the technically how did you come to how did you manage to do it? So you had your outline right. where you come up with this plot. Did that change or did that stay fairly rigid? It stayed fairly um uh, yeah, rigid. Um, um the, there's a difference between a nineteen page outline and a five hundred page <laughs> book. Yes. So what it did allow for was a whole lot of extrapolation. So new characters emerged. The characters uh, that we describe were fleshed out. Uh, new scenes, obviously, were were added. But the the writing the outline proved to us that we could write together. Mm -hmm. And what it was was an act of trust. And were you nervous 
of people reading this book? Because obviously people are reading this book looking for recognisable figures oh, and people we so. know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and, you so know, did and, you find and, yourself in it? <laughs> <laughs> I that's, looked. That's the sequel. <laughs> yeah. And actually there's going to be a sequel, isn't there? Oh, I don't know yet. I mean, seriously, literally we haven't had a moment to think about it, but we've asked, we've been asked that all the time and you know part of the fun of it was yes you said rip from the headlines but also taking what had been happening in the headlines but also looking kind of at the trend lines you know who are these people and they're all fictional characters i will certainly you know say that but (laughs) they have characteristics of real people people that we know people we have observed and I think that's what makes it so much fun. I mean, we're getting tremendous positive feedback because some people, you know, read it and say, oh, my gosh, it's I've never read a political thriller that's like a a, a woman's buddy story. It has I mean, Spanx in it. Yeah, it yes. has Spanx in it, right. And, <laughs> and, and you look how it's spelt with an X and not and flannel moose pajamas. Oh, will you stop with those pajamas? <laughs> yeah, since I wore them once. Granted, it was to an evening. Yeah. Yeah. True, a true Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> that's formal wear in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> But that's what that you can tell. We had a wonderfully fun time writing it, and and part of the fun came from me discovering fiction. I mean, it was liberating, Graham. I mean, when when I think about how do I talk to people about you know terrorists and about the domestic terrorists in my own country who are literally trying to overthrow my government. Uh, how do I talk about that? Well, if I'd written yet another nonfiction book or I'd given another speech, you know, it's like, eat your spinach, people. Pay attention. <laughs> we have a serious threat to our democracy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, teaming up and collaborating with Louise was exhilarating because Okay, people will read it for, you know, the the bombs going off or for the, you know, characters, but also, you know, it's a cautionary tale. It is. It's really the other thing I liked about it, uh, and it was stupid of me not to know this, was that you kind of think if everyone's on, if you're on one side, if you're all in one party, you will all kind of get on because Mm. you have the same ideology, but actually you can hate people and have the same opinions. Right, right, exactly. And we wanted these characters to be um, believable, recognizable, so that they're not, as you said, they're not cardboard cutouts they're not one dimensional they have a multitude of of opinions and they're especially the women characters are vulnerable they have their doubts they're not the super women that you mm-hmm. often see mm-hmm. or the victim mm-hmm. that you often see in in thrillers but now you you say oh we haven't talked about a sequel but the end the terrifying end mm. is, <laughs> it, it does it does suggest that you yeah. you are thinking yeah. tippy tappy fight fingers will <laughs> <laughs> well, that may happen, and and I, you know, that's something we we would have to talk about and decide. But again, you know, the, Louise has something beautiful in her acknowledgments that I absolutely love, and and she says, "Look, this is a book about terror, but it's also about love and courage." And when I read a thriller, and I've read many many of them, I you know I I enjoy the escapism and all of that. But the characters are often, as she said, kind of, you know, formulaic. And so all of a sudden, what we wanted to do, and it was a big risk because we wanted women to be the protagonists of a really scary global threat thriller, and we wanted to develop the other characters so they would live. And and that's something that, you know, if, if, if your listeners have not yet 
uh, encountered uh, Louise's characters in her Gamache series set in Quebec, that's what she does. You you keep going back to them because you want to know what happens next. So that's such a you're such a generous. You know, seriously. Well, that's it such is. A generous it's true. Thing to say. Thank you for that. And, and as a Canadian, because it struck me because this book is so in the heart of of, of the United States. As a Canadian, <laughs> what was that like getting that know, insight? I think it sort of helps a little bit to have that to, to be separated, mm-hmm. so I can I can watch with a little bit perhaps clearer eye than than someone who's imbued in it all the time. Um, so Hillary and I both were able to bring those two different perspectives. But I think one of the reasons I'm, it seems to be resonating worldwide is that while the politics, which is clearly one of the main streams in this, um, is important, it's really about human nature and human beings. And we're all, enfant, you know, at our, at our heart, mm-hmm. the same. And we have the same human reactions to things. So that is, I think, mm-hmm. why it, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, even a Canadian can get that. <laughs> And you're the you're number one in the New York Times bestsellers. Yes, yes, yes. So, and also in Canada. Oh, oh. <laughs> so yes. and soon here, soon oh, here. Let's hope. With, your, let's with hope. your help, thank you, Graham. Out now, you're going to you know, buy ten thousand copies. <laughs> out now in Harbeck. and it strikes me that this book in lockdown because I can't imagine. I, I neither of you seem like women who like to sit still and stare at a wall. Yeah, we could not have written no. this. We don't believe unless we were locked in our houses. <laughs> Separately, separately, separately. Yes, yeah. and that, that was a good point you made. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right because we yeah. do move around a lot. Yeah, Only a pandemic exactly. would allow us to focus. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 then we did it virtually. I mean, we were facetiming and and obviously phone calling and exchanging, you know, drafts and editing and all of that went with it. Um, and and it was so much fun for me because, you know, I used to read about. Uh, fiction writers like Louise, and they would be asked by somebody like you, well, did you know what was going to happen at the end? And oftentimes the response would be, no, I got, I started writing. I had no idea. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Of course. And here we are. I know. I used to, ro- when I used to interview writers before I wrote fiction, I used to roll my eyes at that. <laughs> Not anymore. And then you're like, oh, no, that does happen. Uh, ladies, we are out of time. Oh. We must release you back into oh, the wild. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to spend time with you. The uh. book is called State of Terror. It's a terrific, twisty, turny political thriller, and it's out now in hardback. Thank you so much for coming thank in you. to see us. Take, Take care. care. There's still lots more to come. Dame Joan Collins gives us an insight into her book, My Unapologetic Diaries, and Phil Wang joins us live in the studio to chat about his non-memoir, Side Splitter. But before we get to that, let's see what show chef Martha Collison got up to in the kitchen. I nearly called her Martha Collision, but I mustn't. Hello. Hello. Uh, So, all morning, I've been teasing the listeners with (laughs) our traditional African snack. Mm. Uh, So, what is a traditional African snack? So, these are called Puff Puff, and they are like a yeasted donut, deep fried, covered in spiced sugar. They're really tasty. I feel like I've got sugar all over my face because... (laughs) I couldn't help but just snaffle a couple in the kitchen. Because we've had too much coffee. We've had way too much coffee because we've got an extra coffee today. And, and now sugary treats. I'm going to be bouncing off the seat. By the time Hillary Rodham Clinton gets in here, I'm going to be running around in circles like the toddler having a fit in Wiltshire. Um, so you had me at deep fried, Martha. So uh, like in terms so to explain, because obviously people can't see them or hear or taste them because they're not here. Uh, is it like a donut thing or is it like 
They're kind of a rustic donut, is what I'm going to say. So they're not in a particular shape. The, the dough that we use to make these is quite runny, so you're kind of scooping into the oil. So they've got like a nice kind of rustic edge. I think if you make them properly, these are an African snack, and I think when you make them properly, like they would in Nigeria, they are lovely and circular. So there's a couple of round ones in the pile, but there's also <laughs> but a couple bothered. <laughs> of, of scraggly ones. My technique isn't the best. This is a recipe. Um, well, your hands by... are probably shaking from the sugar. So <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was interesting because this is a recipe by Benjamina Abui and she um, is from Nigeria and she has that descent and she like says that they roll them like when they make them properly in Nigeria and I was doing it with these two spoons like with this wet dough trying to make them circular she says that the proper technique that they use out there her auntie Lucy's recipe she scoops it the wet dough and like makes it into a ball in your hand and this dough is genuinely like the consistency it's very wet <laughs> i don't know how they do that i need to watch some videos to learn how this is done <laughs> well maybe it's to do with um you know the heat or the humidity or something it might that might all help you never know yeah, yeah potentially <laughs> and are because i was think so i i hear deep fat frying and i think delicious but i equally think i'm not doing that because that sounds really hard is this really difficult to make it's not really difficult to make i mean if you've got a deep fat fryer easy peasy oh, if you yes yes i don't have a deep fat fryer so i tend to do my deep frying just in a deep pan just want to take a deep pan fill it with some vegetable oil and then if you kind of want to have a thermometer just to make sure that you're not going too high in the temperature or they'll burn but equally if you don't you can just chuck some dough in see if it browns within a minute or so if it does you're ready to go you can snack on that one she is so the wise <laughs> is there a dip with these or you just eat them as they are so you just eat them as they are i think they'd be really nice like as a dessert with ice cream and sugar i'm um, mm. sorry not more sugar <laughs> ice cream just pile on the sugar <laughs> maybe an espresso an espresso yeah. that'd be delicious huh? <laughs> Maybe some chocolate sauce. <laughs> a bit like a churro. It's got that kind of vibe to it. Oh, gorgeous. All right, I'm going to eat them. Those uh, puff puff are delicious. Mm. So, uh, so what? what's in the dough is it ba dough or batter what do you call it so it's kind of in between the two i think technically it's a dough because it's got yeast in it but it's kind of the consistency of a batter um but the dough it's self-raising flour so it's got that extra oomph for the puff okay. that's what makes them they're so light inside i think when you break them open sometimes donuts are a bit heavy like kind of the ones you might get at the on the pier or something <laughs> but yes. these are really light when you open them up so it's self-raising flour um, a little packet of fast action yeast some sugar and a little bit of fresh nutmeg then you just mix it with some water and leave it for 40 minutes so actually compared with a lot of doughy recipes you normally they say leave it for two or three hours and you think yeah, oh yeah, yeah. i'm hungry now <laughs> yeah but also you see Deep fat fryers frighten me. Yeast frightens me. <laughs> I see yeast and I think, no, I can't be doing. So, but this is, sounds quite simple. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think because you've got the kind of backup as well of that self-raising flour, even if your yeast goes horribly wrong, which it shouldn't, as long as it's in date. <laughs> as long as it's in date and it's kind of the right kind of yeast, because you get a couple of different kinds. This is a fast action yeast. Okay. 40 minutes, it will have doubled in size, put it somewhere nice and toasty in your airing cupboard or somewhere like that. <laughs> then when you open it up, lovely doubled in size. And then you want to heat your oil up to 160 degrees or until a little piece of the dough just sizzles and takes about a minute to go brown. Yeah. Then you spoon in the little dumplings. Whilst they're cooking, they take about one minute on each side. Put some sugar in a on a plate with a little bit of nutmeg and then toss them when they're nice and warm. And then these are the kind of thing you definitely want to eat warm. No, I just had a warm one. It was gorgeous. <laughs> so that, the sugar on top is just sugar and nutmeg? Sugar and nutmeg, oh, yeah. Well, I thought you were going to list ingredients because it tastes like more complicated than that. No, it literally is just sugar and nutmeg. Fresh nutmeg grated with a very fine um, grater. 
Wow. I mean, that is, I mean, but you're right. It would be delicious with like ice cream. It's like, and yes. also, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things. I had one and I immediately wanted another. I didn't because I think if you had like two, then you'd be sick. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> I had two in the kitchen and I feel a bit on the edge. <laughs> but no, they are very addictive. I can see how, I think they have them at a lot of celebrations and things like that, where they just come out of the oil, into the sugar, into people's mouths. And I can see why you just, you'd be there all night, wouldn't you? <laughs> you really, really would. Um, you made, because I look at those and I think I could not make them, but you've made you've made it sound possible. Yes, you've I think you sound, could make yeah. these. Absolutely. Uh, if you're looking for the recipe, it's obviously available on our Instagram, at Virgin Radio UK. Uh, that's our Instagram account, uh, go down there and you just tap away at things till eventually you are led to a recipe and there you will find it. It's also, is it the cover star of the Waitrose Weekend magazine? It is, yeah. They're looking beautiful on there this weekend. Yes, if you're in Waitrose, you'll see them. <laughs> but I've eaten them, so take that. The Graham Norton Radio Show Podcast. Virgin Radio. I can smell it. Uh, Mar- <laughs> Martha <laughs> Collison's here. Uh, what have you done with a pumpkin? Oh, well... Um... Something it's a bit slightly cliche, I have to admit, but I think the cliche works. So this is a pumpkin spice latte loaf cake. Okay. Mm. Wow. And this is your own recipe, your own receipt. It is, yeah. It's my own little creation. Are you a pumpkin spice latte fan, Graham? Is that, that that's the Starbucks drink? It is, yeah. yeah. No, never had it. I'm <laughs> well... not a, to be honest, I'm not a fan of flavoured coffee. I think yes. coffee should taste of coffee. I hear you, but yeah, there is very, very <laughs> but you popular. I, I hear you. I politely, no, the drink, I find the drink quite sweet and it's a, a lot as a coffee. I yeah. also prefer my coffee as a coffee, but I do like the flavour of coffee in bakes because I think it adds a lovely bitter undertone. So if you've got all that sugar and sweetness from pumpkin and sugar and all sorts, it's nice to have something bitter that undercuts it so you can eat more of the cake. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me that what's on top? So we've got a pumpkin loaf cake and then on top is a cream cheese icing and then some coffee syrup and some a little sprinkle of cinnamon as well. You have gone all out, lady. <laughs> wow. And how long does this take to make? Is it a, is it a diff, is, we'll get the recipe after I've uh, wolfed a bit down, but um, <laughs> how long does it take to make? So actually, it's pretty good to make. I find loaf cakes brilliant because you haven't got to go through all the faff of putting it in multiple tins and layering it and slicing it. It's literally into the tin in a lovely loaf liner so that you don't even have to faff about with the baking parchment. And then it takes 50 minutes to bake, but the actual cake baking process, as I'll explain later, is very straightforward. The icing's very simple, but it looks a bit of a showstopper. What's a loaf liner? Mm, so, normally when you take a cake tin, you have to do, go through all the faff of the parchment it and you shove it in it. and you put yeah, stuff on it. And yeah. if you've tried to do it with a loaf tin, you're just there for hours trying to get it to fit right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Waitrose or in like places like Lakeland, you can get these little ready-made, ready-cut loaf liners, so you just pop them in <laughs> and you don't have to do any of the cutting or faffing. Um, and these are perfect. I've actually made double the recipe so I can freeze one at home to have a little bit later in the week. <laughs> Aren't you clever? Uh, well, loaf liners is a takeaway from today. <laughs> yeah, little hack. All right, well, look, we'll, uh, I'll wolf down some pumpkin spice latte cake and uh, give you my verdict. It's delicious. It's really moist and sweet. and Oh, it's lovely. So talk us through it. Mm, so I feel like moisture is a secret to this kind of cake because it just makes it really moorish and it makes it last a lot longer as well. And the key to the moisture is, of course, from the pumpkin. 
our old damp friends. The star ingredient. I think everything gets a bit of a pumpkin makeover at this time of year, which can be good in some ways, but also you're a bit like, do I want pumpkin in that? Do I want pumpkin in that? <laughs> but I think in this instance, it works really well. I've actually used a can of pumpkin in this because you can make your own pumpkin puree, particularly if you've got your pumpkins out for Halloween and you want to do something with the leftover flesh after you've scooped it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can steam that or boil it and then blitz it down into your own puree. Um, but using the can is obviously much easier. And I didn't even know you could get a can of pumpkin puree. Where, where is that just in? Is that in the baking bit or in the vegetable bit? It will be in the can, like the, with the canned fruit. Oh, canned fruit. Okay. Yeah. So with the with the tin peaches and the tin mandarins, you'll find a tin of pumpkin puree. Um, so- I am learning <laughs> so much today. I think yeah, very good. Okay, so that's where my canned pumpkin is. Yeah. Uh, so you've so you've got your canned pumpkin. What are the other? What else goes into the the mix? So we start with making kind of the wet mixture, which is the canned pumpkin, some eggs, um, a little bit of caster sugar and light brown sugar, so you get a lovely caramelly flavour. And then we're using oil in this cake rather than butter. So again. There's not so much kind of faffing about with creaming the butter and doing yeah, all yeah, of that. Yeah. It actually pour in the vegetable oil and it also adds to the moisture because it kind of locks into the pumpkin and makes this lovely moist crumb. So that gets put into one bowl and then also some strongly brewed coffee. So we've actually got coffee in the cake as well as in the syrup on the top. Uh-oh. <laughs> so it's yeah. a proper <laughs> knock-you-out kind of cake. Yeah. Ooh, okay. <laughs> and then in the other bowl, you want your flour, baking powder, all your other dry ingredients. Those two get mixed together, poured into your tin, baked for 45 minutes. Whilst it's baking, you want to make this coffee syrup. This is another part of the moisture because we're going to just literally boil together coffee and sugar for a couple of minutes until it's dissolved. And then you brush your cake when it comes out the oven with this coffee syrup so it all seeps through. And then you save the rest, drizzle over the top of the cake once you've made this very quick cream cheese icing. Kind of make it all nice and swirly, drizzle over that coffee syrup, little dusting of uh, cinnamon and you're good to go. See, I love listening to someone who bakes talking about baking because you make (laughs) it sound so possible. Whereas I know if I tried to make this, my kitchen would look like a bomb went off. (laughs) You could definitely make this, for sure. I might be able to make it, but I would be cleaning up for (laughs) days afterwards. It's a sticky one. I will say that much. The syrup does seem to get everywhere that you don't want syrup in your kitchen. (laughs) No. I'm very glad you made it uh, <laughs> and I'm very glad I got to eat it. it w- but also it would be it feels yeah not too massively indulgent and yet it's very sweet and lovely. Yeah it's got vegetables in it it's healthy yeah. it's healthy one of your, yeah. maybe one of your five a day you never yeah, know. It's a, it's a <laughs> Halloween treat uh, you can make this for next week is this in the weekend magazine or is this just uh, online? It's not it's just online this one it was in the weekend magazine I think last year but I've uh revived it you've dusted it off <laughs> you've dusted it off especially for Halloween and if you'd like the recipe you just go to our Instagram page at Virgin Radio UK and you stab away at things and eventually you will be led to the recipe for a pumpkin spiced latte cake thank you very much Martha uh, we'll see you next weekend have a lovely oh I forgot to ask how was Iceland oh it was wonderful thank you yep. oh wow. spent the week in a little camper van driving about looking at the waterfalls and having a lovely time Oh, listen, she's so Instagrammable. (laughs) She's an influencer, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. It is time to greet my first guest of the day, comedian Phil Wang. He has a new book out called Sidespitter, How to Be from Two Worlds at Once. This is not a memoir. That's all we need to know. Is that correct? That's right. It's not a memoir, (laughs) Graham, because I'm not old enough. But there are lots... Lots of stories from my life. <laughs> yeah, but, but genuinely, it isn't a memoir. 
No, um, no, because it's it's about it's called side splitter. It's about being from two worlds at once. I'm half British and half Malaysian, and the book is an exploration of that dual identity and of sort of having a dual identity in general. And the book is split into ten subjects. Um, family, food, home, and it, these are ten separate explorations of those ten aspects of being from two places at once. And so, it's what you're talking about is quite a nuanced thing uh, because it, it's it's about you kind of figuring it out as as well as other people. Because you, it, one of the things you talk about is that you know, oh, where are you from? No, originally, blah blah blah. But also for your kind of inside your head, where you're from? Because what you were born here. That's right. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's confusing even to me. I, I was <laughs> I was born in Stoke-on-Trent, in yes. England, where my mother is from, and um, three weeks later, with a celebrity connection. Yes, of course. Same hospital as uh, Robbie Williams, and I think you can see the resemblance. <laughs> Those midwives knew what they were doing. Oh yeah, it's it's a hospital of stars, North Staffordshire Maternity Hospital. <laughs> it's where stars are born, literally. Um, uh, but three weeks after I was born, flew back to, um, well, back in inverted commas, to, to Malaysia, where my father's from. And that's where I grew up. And did you always, in your head, think, I'm going back to the UK, that's where my life is going to be? Um, you know, it, it, sometimes, sometimes. Because I, I grew up looking, you know, it's funny, here in the UK, people look at me and instantly go, oh, there's an Asian guy. And, and I go, yeah, hi, how's it going? But growing up in Malaysia, compared to everyone, I was pretty white. So I was like the white guy. So growing up as the white kid and the white teenager, I thought, well, I guess this is not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be in the UK, where my mother's from, where where people look like me. And then I moved. <laughs> I moved to the UK, not just the UK, but moved to the city of Bath, which, I, as I say in the book, is a, a spa town for people who find Cheltenham too ethnic. <laughs> and I realized in the context of Bath, wow, I'm actually pretty Asian. And it was at that point, moving to the UK at 16, that I realised, OK, I probably won't feel completely native anywhere I go. And coming to the UK and kind of discovering, oh, actually, this isn't as blendy as I thought it was going to be. It's not the great melting pot I've been sold. Uh, were you tempted to just turn around and head home, head back to Malaysia? Well, n no, not really, because it's still, you know, the UK... Is a wonderful place, and and all these cultural influences I'd grown up with—the comedy, the literature, the music—this is where it was from, you know, the UK. And I was able to to pursue uh, music, and then when I found comedy and stand-up in my late teens, there was already a well-established comedy tradition in the UK, and so the UK represented and was home to so many of these. Uh, uh, so many of these cultural, um, uh, uh, what would you call, worlds that I'd grown up with and I, that I'd always been fascinated by and that I always wanted to be a part of. And although I found that the UK probably wasn't where I was going to feel racially at home completely, it was culturally somewhere I felt very much at home. Yeah. Yeah. In the comedy section, you do a kind of a deep dive into uh, Only When I Laugh. Uh, Sorry? Is it Only When I... Oh, no. oh um... Uh, no. Mind your language. Mind your language. Which, yes. yes. Yeah. Mind your language. Yes. That's right. I, I dedicate a whole chapter to the 1977 sitcom Mind Your Language. Uh, because you you talk to this actress, uh, yeah. Pixie. That's Pixie Lim. Yeah. Um, a fascinating story. Tell us about her. Well, she. Um, well, so Mind Your Language, for those who don't know, is this late 70s a British sitcom about 
um, foreign students in an English second language class in London and their beleaguered teacher, Mr. Brown, who must teach all these various uh, foreign peoples English. And of course, they get it wrong and it's, uh, and it's hilarious. And by today's standards, it's a bit... It's a bit on the on the nose. It's a bit close yeah. to the bone, but at the time, of course, not so much. And Pixie Lim played the a Chinese student Chung uh, Su Li, and I I realized she was Malaysian. She's um, Malaysian Chinese from Penang in Malaysia, and I actually got to do a, a short movie with her a couple of years back, and I was starstruck because I've been brought up with mind your language. It's huge in Malaysia. People love it, and so and Pixie Lim had moved to uh, the UK. Um, in the 60s from Malaysia on her own and just in a similar story to me she just wanted to be an actor and she did it and she's still acting now her, her IMDB goes from 1964 to 2021 and counting wow it's crazy yeah, yeah. And, but that show you, it, it, it's interesting isn't it because it is you know uh, by any measure, it is offensive. <laughs> <laughs> by many measures, yeah. yeah. And and yet, you you know, you're talking to your uncle, who should be the one being offended by it. That's right. But he loves it. Yeah, I called my uncle David um, uh, in Malaysia to talk about um, mind your language, and he was thrilled because mind your language is being replayed now in Malaysia. It's still being is on reruns. It's still being played. It's his favorite show, and even and. You, you, which is counterintuitive because the whole show is these broad, pretty offensive caricatures of there's a Sikh man, there's a, a Hindu uh, lady, there's a Chinese woman, there's an Italian man, a Greek man, and they all play up to these national stereotypes in a very, what we consider today, crass way. Yeah. But at the time, and still now, it's extraordinary, it was extraordinary for Malaysians and Asian people in general to see themselves on a, on a huge international, uh, internationally successful sitcom. Yeah. And because every single nationality, every single race gets uh, gets made fun of sort of by turns, it kind of feels like everyone gets a go. And in Malaysia, which is a very racially, culturally mixed society, it, it, it didn't feel mean. It kind of felt similar to everyday Malaysian life. Whereas in the UK, where there's more of a, a majority population, you know, it, it seem it can be seen a bit more as, as bullying, but it's very. I find it very interesting that in Malaysia, it's not seen that way at all. I know. It's, I find it fascinating, absolutely, and also that, that they were laughing at the English people in it. That's right. That, yeah, that they, that's what they found funny. That the English people were so useless at. <laughs> yeah, so useless and 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 mean and uh, and lacking in fun. Yeah, <laughs> and in the book, there are some really like heartbreaking things for me i'm reading it it's heartbreaking your chapter on love yeah because we i in my head i kind of think oh racism is you know bullies in the schoolyard or people on the street or not getting a job or whatever but dating mm. there's a kind of a level of racism in that yeah yeah and it's it's a particularly tricky one because it, it it's one that that encroaches on you know uh um, personal taste as well and in, in the story in the book I, I tell the story of um, I, I do a gig at um, Roehampton University and I'm announced on this early on in my career and I'm announced on by the, the host who says and your next act is Phil Wang and there's a little um, a little commotion in the crowd and the host goes so what's going on it is two girls and one girl um, reveals that she'd said to the other upon hearing my name Phil Wang oh is he fit you know isn't that a sort of fun way and the other girl had gone no he's Chinese and the moment she says this the whole room goes quiet and they realise what they've said is actually a bit you know, not quite on. But then I was like, I, I heard, and I was there for that. And 
you know, it was kind of, it was shocking, but I wasn't surprised. It's something I'm quite used to. This sort of the emasculation of the East Asian man is quite a common thing. And it's something that you might not be aware of if you yourself aren't an East Asian man, but if you are, it's, it's, it, it comes with the territory. And so in this chapter, in that chapter, I talk about the emasculation of the East Asian man and the history of it and how it used to be the opposite. It used to be, uh, the, sort of uh, the sexual villainization of the East Asian man with things like um, uh, Fu Manchu. This is a hugely popular character that was invented by a British writer of this dastardly Chinese guy with these long mustaches who would capture women and have his, his um, wickedly way with them. And then as the 20th, 20th century progressed, it sort of inverted and became the sort of sexless East Asian man with silly caricatures of East Asian men on TV and stuff. And that, that's, sort of the, that's the sort of history of, uh, uh, of, of, <laughs> of, of, of sex, prejudice. Of sexual prejudice against these Asian men, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and deciding to go on stage, it seems to me, is the thing that means you have to deal with this all the time. You have to face it. Or you, presumably you have to address it, you have to talk about it, but also deal with audiences all, all the time. Um, was that a... Was that part of your decision making in terms of, you know, I'm going to be a stand up? It's as in, was it part of my decision making to want to sort of uh, explode these? Yeah, to talk about these things. Yeah, totally, because I just felt like it was something that people weren't talking about simply because there weren't many East Asian uh, stand ups. There's certainly more now, and I don't feel that sort of pressure now as I used to. But when I was starting out, there was hardly anyone else. And and so I felt like there's a, a weight of a, an entire <laughs> an entire culture on my shoulders. Well, not really, but um, but yeah. But I, but it was at the time, and and I mean, you know, this is well as me when you're starting out in comedy, you have to lay out your stall and you have to explain yourself away. Exactly. Yeah. But then as people become more aware of you, you you're, you're given the freedom to talk about other things. But at that period of my career, I really had to, you know, yeah, defend myself. And and yeah. did you get to that point? I remember when I was doing stand up, I I remember being on stage and. Uh, the word gay came out of my mouth again. I'm like, if I say the word gay one more time, I'm just, oh. Yeah. Uh, did you get to that point? Um, where you were, I just want to do material about kitchen cupboards. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like it's something you just have to get out of the way at the beginning. You go, uh, ah, yes, I'm, I'm East Asian. Here's a couple of jokes. And then I can talk about politics and history and all this sort of thing. But fortunately for me, you know, race and my race um, in particular, it's not something I'm tired of talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we should say, uh, if people want to hear more you've got a netflix special yes it's called philly philly wang wang because i couldn't be bothered to think up of another name but people seem to like it philly philly wang wang on netflix um it's a netflix special yeah and uh filmed at the london palladium yeah that was pretty cool oh, well that's an amazing thing yeah i um i managed to sell it out um under reduced capacity restrictions <laughs> So I, yeah, as long as social distancing is in place, I can sell out the London Palladium. Yeah. Yeah. But also for your family back in Malaysia, like that's such a kind of cultural iconic thing, the London Palladium. So that, you know, their boy is there. That must be such a huge thing. I don't think they have any awareness of the London Palladium in they? particular, no. 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 no that, that's just a London thing. It's just London. It's mainly <laughs> People London in Manchester thing. are going, what is he talking about? <laughs> yeah, I just say the England Palladium. And they go, wow, yeah, sounds impressive. <laughs> in the book, you talk about uh, nature and one of the things you like about uh, Britain is how mild and mm. kind of, you know, unthreatening it is. But you had, you did have quite a scary encounter. I did out in the West Country in, um, in Devon. I was out for a very mild stag do. Uh, <laughs> I don't friend. know why I believe you so. <laughs> As you say that, I think, yeah, I believe that. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the craziest thing about it was um, that I, I matched red wine with chicken one night. <laughs> that was the craziest, the craziest we got up to. Um, uh, for, and for one day, we, we had walked to a, a, a brewery and we walked through some, uh, some fields and we were encountered by a small herd of cows. And at first we, we brushed it aside like, oh, how, how pleasant. Oh, this is the parochial life. Oh. And suddenly these cows got really angry that we were in their field. They turned on us like, honestly, like a, a Roman unit of soldiers all at once. I, I thought cows are stupid. They're very like, like, they're military precision when they need to. And they just, whoom, they just turned like that. Like we were in Gladiator and they just started charging us and we had to, we jumped over fences, we were trying to route them, we were trying to flank them, we had to, they, they knew when we'd cut around them, they could sense that we'd walked around them behind bushes and they would turn up and we ran for like half an hour from these cows. <laughs> Eventually, we got away from them, and it turned. I googled it afterwards, and cows can be nasty. Oh, yeah. They we got we had a lucky break. Apparently, if you're approached by one, the vice is to punch it in the face. If if it, yeah, this, I look this up, Graham. Don't look. Don't give me. A, you're gonna get I'm not calls. Sure from, we should, I'm not sure we should advise people I'm to not, punch cows. I'm not saying you should. If you see a cow in the distance, you should run up to it. But if one is getting, it, yeah. Getting if, you feel, if you feel threatened. If it's getting handsy, if it's getting hoofy, <laughs> then you are apparently, you have the right to punch it in the face. Yeah, no, I heard a story on the Irish radio, uh, a farmer's wife, and she had, I mean, terrible, her, her, her own cows turned on her. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I, they went on strike. Well, I a felt, cow mutiny. A I mutiny. Say, I, it was a mutiny. If, a mutiny. Thank you. We have to stop now because we can't. We can't improve on that. <laughs> the word mutiny. Uh, side splitter. Side splitter is the book. How to be from two worlds at once. It's out now in hardback and the special uh, for Netflix. The Philly Philly Wang Wang uh, special is uh, on Netflix right now. Uh, thank you so much for coming to see us, Phil. Thank you, Graham. Thanks right. so much. Take care of yourself. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time for my second guest of the day. The word star gets used a lot, but there aren't many true stars in the world. But this person is one. Also one of my favourite people on planet Earth. It is Dame Joan Collins. Hello, Dame Joan Collins. Oh, darling, hello. I've missed you since we saw each other two weeks ago. (laughs) That was such... It was such a special, special night. I should tell the listeners, uh, I was there to interview uh, Joan for the launch of her book, My Unapologetic Diaries. It was such a gorgeous evening. I loved it. I know. And uh, you were so wonderful. And you're just so fast, you know. I remember when I first met you, you probably don't remember this, but uh, the story is in my book, I think. But it was in the early 2000s. And um, you were on... And I was on with the lady who was um, popping um, little tiny uh, ping pong balls out of a certain <laughs> area of her body. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember and, it. Uh, I was laughing hysterically and there was somebody else on who wasn't laughing at all. Apparently, at this particular time, my husband, who I hadn't met yet, was in Glasgow. And he'd just been offered to do a film, a, a show with me. 
to um, be, you know, part of the production team. And um, he didn't really know much about me other than Dynasty, but he watched this, and when he saw how I was laughing at all the ping pong balls coming out, he thought, yeah, I can, I can look at this woman. <laughs> good times <laughs> that, ahead. <laughs> yes, good times. But, yeah, that was fantastic. I can't remember the name of the man who was really cross and didn't like it, but... Um, um, I, I rudely, I can only remember his character name, uh, which is, yeah. I won't say it because that, that's so bad not to remember the no, actor's I name. It's, yes. it's really bad. Yeah. But I'm very excited because today the book's number four on the Sunday Times bestseller list, which is fantastic because do you know how many books came out on the same day as mine? And this is an unbelievable to me. It's called um, something Thursday, special Thursday or something. 300 books were published, 300 different titles on that day, Graham. No, I, I, saw, I saw it on the list and I think because this is such a tough time of the year to, to, oh, to get books out there. So to be number four yeah. is amazing. Congratulations. Yes. And you. tell me this, you seem to me the sort of person who's uh, interested in tomorrow, what you're doing this evening, what the plans are. Did you enjoy the idea of kind of going back and looking at your diaries? Yes, I thought it was fun um, because I didn't write them. I spoke them into a little tape recorder after the tape recorder that I'd used to learn all my lines on Dynasty when I was being driven into work. So I started on the last day of Dynasty when I thought, what am I going to do with this tape recorder? So I thought, oh, yeah. So I stood in the middle of this teeny-weeny dressing room and I said, here's my last day of Dynasty and it's a bit sad but I'm sort of glad, and I said all the things, you know, about, oh, it's so tiny, and here I have had all of my fittings and learnt my lines. But it's now Goodbye Dynasty, Hello, Noel Coward, because I was going to star in Private Lives in London. So um, it was really fun looking back on that, Graham, because I I have a lot in the um, in the book about how, we were auditioning different actors for um, uh, private lives and um, how d- difficult it was with some people and uh, all, all the backstage stuff that went on at that particular time. And also when Princess Diana came to visit us, when we all practically couldn't speak because we were so nervous because we were all huge fans of hers and I dried on the stage, which, as you know, is an actor's absolute nightmare I suddenly could not remember a single line and I looked across at um, the actor it was Keith Baxter and I looked at him and, and wiggled my eyebrows and made and looked up stage and said I can't remember my line but he didn't take any notice because he couldn't remember his so he said <laughs> I think I'll have a cigarette so I went to the cigarette box and opened it but you know props only put like three cigarettes in and those had already been smoked so there was no cigarette so I said I think I'll go into the other room and get a cigarette Elliot so I went off got a cigarette came back and remembered the line and then Princess Diana came on in the intermission it was utterly divine and charming to all of us she was so lovely and in fact I, I there is it's odd the way that world events kind of encroach into the world of this book there's a really I found it really moving the section where you know this glittering world is going on in the south of France and then suddenly the news of her death uh, arrives oh. I mean and it, I know. Yeah, it was because you were with the great and the good. 
Well, I had been a, a, a few weeks earlier on a yacht with uh, Valentino and his partner, Giancarlo, and um, we had spotted the, the yacht that Princess Diana was on with her new partner, lover, whatever, Dodi Fayed, who I actually knew. And um, Giancarlo said, I'm going to go and see her and invite her for a drink or for dinner. So he zoomed onto one of those water bikes and zoomed over to the, the name of the yacht, I can't remember, and said, um, Valentino wishes to invite Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed to dinner. And the guys came out, three guys came out with massive machine guns and said, keep away. They're not going anywhere. They want privacy. <laughs> So he zoomed back. So Princess Diana didn't come to dinner, but um, she had been seen the previous week at a restaurant in the south of France that we go to. Um, and the um, the owner told me that she had been there with Dodi and her two boys. And she was having such a lovely time and she was dancing and eating the fabulous French food. And that was just two weeks, three weeks before she died. The other night I was saying to you, you do look so Fabulous! You do look fabulous, Thank you. and yet you have—I—you I, have resisted the temptation for the nips and the tucks that a lot of people have done. How did you? Because you were in the heart of Hollywood, you were there yes. watching all your friends doing these things with plastic yeah. surgery and stuff. How did you avoid it? Well, first of all, I'm totally needle phobic, so anybody that and and, and also. Uh, sort of hypochondriacal about having to go into the hospital to do anything. So that was most of that. And also, when I saw people who'd done it and done these mini tweaks and fat injections and plumping up their lips, I didn't like the way they looked. They didn't look like the way they had looked. And that goes for some actresses, and I'm not going to mention their names, but I think we all know who they are. Mm. And they just had lost their look, and it's better to look, I think, like you should look as you get older. I'm not pretending to look younger, although I hope I do. <laughs> you um, do, but... you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I just want to keep the face I had and to take, I take enormously good care of my skin. I mean, I you know, I, I I massage it. I use all kinds of creams and lotions, and I don't go to sleep without stuff on it. But and I don't go in the sun with without a hat and without all of that protection. But I don't want to go under the knife or to go the tweak ones. I think the tweak ones are more more terrible actually because once you start, I think that then you have to do it again. And I know some people who are absolutely besotted by it. And, and what, you know them too. Oh, I know. And what do you say when you're at a party and you bump into a friend, an old friend with a new face? Uh, how do you how do you express your shock? Oh, I say, have we met? <laughs> <laughs> no, I you pretend it's like the elephant in the room. You just look into the eyes which can't don't really change or the hairline or the the the, the hands. Yeah, it can be and I've made some horrible mistakes. I, I said to somebody the other day, um, oh, God, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't remember your name. And it turned out to be a really good friend of mine from Los Angeles who had just, who I hadn't seen for a year because of COVID and had had a, a major resurfacing. <laughs> 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 Not good. You must be so happy that uh, lockdown's over because the, in the book, I mean, you are out all the time. You seem absolutely tireless. 
Well, I am quite tireless. Um, my mother used to say that I, you know, her nickname for me was uh, Miss Perpetual Motion uh, because I never kept still and I never stopped doing things. I mean, I had five projects on the go and I would read, you know, I was reading when I was four. I was a voracious reader. And I just, you know, I really feel that I want to take life by both hands and, you know, grab it as much as I can. I've lost three or four really good friends in the last couple of months, which has been very, very upsetting. And um, but I just, you know, I'm going to go on. I've written another diary, Graham. It's called my COVID diaries. And I started it the last day before lockdown when we were the only people in the restaurant with with Andrew Pierce, our friend. And um, the owner of the restaurant is saying, it's just a, it's just a cold. It's just flu. You don't have to leave. It's going to be fine. And so my COVID diary is full of things like this and things like, well, they say it's only going to be another two weeks or so. And I mean, this was in April 2019 or 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's terrifying, actually. It's terrifying. I've had, obviously, I've had all the shots and I'm very careful. I mean, I don't shake hands with people and I don't hug and I don't kiss, which is great because I've never liked doing that anyway, <laughs> except to members of my family. So, <laughs> silver silver linings, silver linings. Yes, uh, yeah. Joan, you are an inspiration to us all. My Unapologetic Diaries is out now in hardback. Uh, I hope to see you again soon. Take care of yourself. I hope so. Lots of love. Oh, guys. lots of love to you. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really, really Thank kind you. of you. Thank you very yes. much. Uh, the great Dame Joan Collins. Uh, the book is out now. What a weekend. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. I'll be back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning. And hey, make sure you have subscribed to this podcast so you can hear a new episode of the best bits of the show from Monday morning. Speak soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.